Social scientist Karen O'Brien has um, devoted her career to exploring the mechanisms that drive change and adaptation. Um, what do we need to understand about how we create change and how do we deal with these consequences? She's, of course, a professor of human geography at the University of Oslo in Norway, and her research focuses on climate change adaptation and the transformations to sustainability and on the relationship between individual and collective change. So please make Karen O'Brien feel very, very welcome. Thank you, Scintilla, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, it's really an honor to be here today to come to talk to you about the challenge of change. Um, I've been working for over 25 years on climate change impacts, vulnerability, and adaptation, and um, especially what it means for human security. And over the past years, I've become more and more interested in the change part of climate change. Um, specifically, how do we adapt to changes for which we are responsible? And so over the next 25 minutes, I want to really talk to you about how we might approach climate change in a different way and suggest that maybe we're actually addressing the wrong problem. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I've learned about um, by engaging directly with change and challenge each of you to do a small experiment with change. At the end, I'd like you to each consider the possibility that each one of us makes much more of a difference than we actually think we do, um, in different ways than we think we do. But let me first start talking um, a few words about climate change. There is no doubt that it's time to adapt to climate change. Adaptation has been getting more and more attention in research and policy, um, and for good reasons. Um, even with a dramatic reduction in greenhouse gases, if that were to happen overnight, over the next decades, we still have to adapt to the changes that we've already committed to because of past and current greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's really important to understand how to protect our coastlines, how to reduce heat stress, how to avoid damages from um, floods and droughts and things, and also how to relocate people for, um, and species to new areas. But as a researcher, I'm interested not only in how to adapt to the impacts of climate change, but how do we adapt to the very idea that we are changing the climate? How do we adapt to the idea that we are changing conditions of the Earth's system for centuries and millennia to come and changing the life options for young people today and for future generations? And perhaps most importantly, how do we actually adapt to the possibility that we collectively can transform the, um, the future and we can create deliberate transformations to sustainability? And each and every one of us matters in this process. So my research that I'm working on for the next five years is looking at the type of connections that we have to make to make this possible. Um, how do we use creativity, empowerment, collaboration, and the flexibility, especially the flexibility of the narratives and stories we tell ourselves to actually change the way we relate to each other? Can we see ourselves not just as the problem in climate change, but also as the solution? I want to start with this um, graph, because climate change really is a problem. And um, this one image from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I think, sums up really what the challenge is. These are two different scenario modeling scenarios for um, the climate changes we're likely to experience by the end of the century with substantial mitigation or with, um, without substantial mitigation. In other words, with, on, the, on the right, we're seeing pretty much a business-as-usual trajectory that we're, um, that we're on. And we can see on the left that even with substantial mitigation, we're going to be in a 
a warmer world that we will have to adapt to. And the imp impacts of these changes are geographically uneven, but also socially uneven. And we know that half a degree of climate change is dangerous for vulnerable groups and vulnerable species and um, certain ecosystems and everything. So this is not unproblematic. This one sentence from the IPCC synthesis report, I think, really tells us why it's so important that we start to address climate change right now. And it says that without additional mitigation efforts beyond those in place today, and even with adaptation, warming by the end of the 21st century will lead to high to very high risk of severe widespread and irreversible impacts globally. And we say that this with high confidence. So to summarize the issue, it really comes down to five words. The future is a choice. And I think this is really important. And if we accept this, then we have to really think about, okay, what, what choices are we making today? And how do we actually limit climate change to below two degrees, which is what the 2015 Paris Agreement has, um, has um, agreed to collectively. How do we do this? Well, it's very clear that this is a challenge and a problem. And if we want to do it, we have to transform energy systems. We have to transform agricultural systems, transport systems, food systems, water systems, economic systems. And we also have to transform human behavior at a rate, scale, magnitude, and depth that we have never done before um, in human history. So the type of challenge, then, is really um, real. And probably many of you are thinking now, good luck. <laughs> you know, like, let's see how we can do this. Um, the very idea of systems change sounds big and abstract and even quite scary. And you know, like, what is a system? Um, a system is really nothing more than a set of things that work together to form a larger whole. It's an interconnected network of relationships. And this here is a depiction of the climate system from the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia. And it shows all the different variables that are, make up the climate system and all you know, um, how human activities then are influencing them. And you can see human activities are represented in the center by a polluting industry. And I think this is really important in terms of how we conceive and conceptualize climate change. But I also think this is part of the problem of our approach. What we're doing is we're making pollution the problem. We're making CO2 as the problem um, of climate change. And we're suggesting that it can be addressed through technological um, tech, um, innovations and managerial improvements and behavioral and lifestyle changes. So the problem then is the CO2 and the problem is not us. So treating it like a technical problem is like, um, is like missing the point because we're not looking at individual beliefs, values, and worldviews, our sense of meaning making, how we relate to each other, how we relate to the environment, and how we relate to future generations. So what I would say is that climate change, yes, there are technical aspects. Yes, we have to address CO2. But climate change really is a relationship problem. It's really about the relationships between the variables in the system where we are part of that system. We are a conscious and reflexive part of that system increasingly. And if we want to change systems, we've got to explore these relationships, not only with each other, but with ourselves, with um, other species, with future generations, and also with stuff, including fossil fuels. So if we can transform relationships, we can transform systems. And we're showing that already with the climate system, that we are capable of transforming big systems.
So right now, many people around the world are working really hard um, to change the system and to address climate change. We're working on international agreements, national commitments, carbon taxes, um, renewable energy solutions, um, and lots of other incentives for moving away from a fossil fuel economy. And we're trying to change both production and consumption um, systems, and also we're trying to change people. How many of you have had someone try to change you before? Okay, <laughs> That's, I'll come to another question. These are very important, but they do, again, treat climate change as if it's just a technical problem, and it avoids the much deeper questions that are linked to, linked to beliefs, values, and worldviews. So if we really want to change the world in the window of opportunity that exists right now, that science is telling us um, is available, we really have to start talking about transformation, about transformations to sustainability. And this draws attention to... Um, us as individuals and how, how we actually relate to transformative change. A transformation can be described or defined as a significant change in form, structure, and meaning-making. And this is, I think, where we have to go if we're going to start to look um, successfully at climate change. Because if we deal with it just as a technical solution, we're likely to fail. If we frame climate change as a an adaptive challenge for, for humanity, we start to look at different types of solutions. Adaptive challenges put people front and center in the, um, in the problem, recognizing them as the most powerful solution to climate change that exists. So instead of being pro the problem, people become the solution. Um, when we start to look at people, we have to think about how do we organize society? What do we prioritize and why? We have to recognize that people hold the collective power for change and that they create and use the technologies, they design and manage systems, and they can critically reflect upon what the future goals uh, might be and how we reach them. And this is a little bit different because currently we focus on trying to change people's attitudes, behaviors, and lifestyles. Eat less meat, ride a bicycle, travel by train, avoid plastic bags, turn off the lights. You've heard that litany of what we can do to change the world. But I think our behaviors are just a small part of the solution. And um, often if we do that, if we ride our bicycles to work, we come home in the evening and we hear that they're building new coal power plants in this country and expanding the airports in this country, and we feel pretty irrelevant and pretty um, and small. And so the climate change issue is much bigger than just our personal changes because many people with power um, have vested interests in maintaining the systems the way that they are. And, you know, to, to be honest, we all have vested interests in having systems that, um, that work because we benefit from them. So is it possible to actually get large numbers of people to change and to change the system? And this is something that I'm really interested in. Um, but then again, we have to look at the approaches. How many of you have ever tried to change somebody else? Your partner, your um, mother, your child, a colleague, or a friend? There's a few people who have done that, yeah. Um, and I could ask how many people have been successful. Um, but from experience, we know that it doesn't really work that well. Um, often we make people feel like inadequate and insufficient or simply just not good enough when we, when we make them to change. And it often creates just the opposite of what we want, you know, resistance, backlash. Um, it often exacerbates or you know, amplifies what we're trying to change. People drive more and eat more meat and things like that. Um, 
And usually the one who's promoting the change is coming from a very moral and climate high ground and saying, I know what's right and I know better and, and, and everything. And we, we may or we may not, but the point is that nobody likes to be changed. And even if the goal is something worthy, like avoiding dangerous climate change for the planet, um, it's not going to be uh, um, successful if we do that. So what happens then if we change the focus of the problem and emphasize not just one person's individual obligation to change, but instead focus on our shared potential for change? Now, as a teacher, I know that um, my words sound like blah, 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 and that my students actually get a lot more out of experiential learning than by listening to me talk. And I know that they learn more when they engage with an issue not just cognitively up here, but um, personally and emotionally. So when I started teaching a course on global environmental change um, about 12 years ago, I would go talk about social change and systems change, and their eyes would glaze over, and they would just go like, uh. And um, after like about six years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to challenge each student to make one small change for 30 days and then reflect on it. And during the course, I would talk about social practices and systems and power and things like that. But I would ask them to reflect on their change, to talk about it, to really kind of put it into the context of this global, I mean, the global problems we're deal, dealing with. And the papers I received them were just amazing and incredible. And I want to share with you some of the lessons I've learned over the last six years about these types of changes. The first part of the challenge really was actually deciding on the one change that they could do for 30 days. And it could be any change. <laughs> and it had to be a slight stretch from what they did in their everyday life. Um, the most obvious choices for an experiment are those that are really like climate-friendly behavior, such as you know, eating vegetarian, biking to work, using reusable bags or a, water a reusable water bottle, um, living on a limited income every day for 30 um, days, or even spending more time outside. And these are all really good. But many of my students were already doing these things. Many of them were leading big environmental organizations, buying secondhand clothes, vegans, and things like that. And so they said, like, I can't do anything. And I'd ask them, what is a stretch for you? And often what came up was like taking time for myself or taking care of myself. And so it was kind of like, you know, if the challenge for them was to actually take time to not do anything for an hour a day, to knit, to play the guitar, to um, meditate, um, draw, things like that. And these experiments with change were just as affected as the ones um, of um, the environmentally friendly ones, and sometimes even more powerful. And my point here is that the experiment itself is not about reducing carbon emissions, but it's really about change and people's relationship with change. So what did I learn? Well, the first lesson is that choice makes a difference. When you can choose the change, you own it and you commit to it. Um, I could hand out changes to everybody, eat a vegetarian diet for five um, days a week, or take shorter showers, or um, recycle, or things like that. But these would be my solutions and not their solutions or your solutions. And the challenge would be neither fun nor interesting. Um, and I myself would never think of challenges like going dumpster diving in the, in the you know, pits of grocery stores to get used food or having a compost in my closet and things like that. And there's the creative and fun ideas that people actually did um, were much more um, interesting. The second lesson is that... Um, Experiments are really important. They can generate curiosity. It's really easy um, to talk to others about change when it's in, approached as an experiment rather than as this moral <coughs> imperative. 
Often when we decide to change and we try to you know, think, oh, this is a really good idea, we notice that our partners and our friends, they start to shrink away and they know that they're going to be the next target, that you're like, oh no, <laughs> it's your turn next. But with the change experiments, what we found is that parents and friends were actually really curious. They're like, is it actually better to eat organic food than local food, even if the organic food is shipped halfway around the world? Or do you really miss eating a ham sandwich? Or how do you survive? And what would I pick if I were doing a 30-day challenge? And these types of conversations then prove to be really important and probably much more important than the change itself because you were changing the conversations. Another lesson that I learned is that social norms are really powerful. They're some of the most powerful barriers to change because they keep us keeping comf um, feeling comfortable, included, and secure. And these are feelings that we like and feelings that are really good. Um, when we have the courage to actually break with these social norms, which takes some guts, we have to, you know, asking for a vegetarian option at the steakhouse when you're with a group of friends, or, um, you know, bringing your own bags to the store and having people look at you like you're a bag lady or something. Um, you know, we're actually contributing to new social norms as we do these things. We're paving the way for other people to do the same thing. Um, and when other enough people do it, then you're likely to start seeing veggie burgers on the steakhouse menu, and you're, start, you're going to likely see that um, things change much faster. Um, and we've seen this with things like um, smoking, seatbelts, and drunk driving, and um, things like that. When the norms start to change, and when they're shared by enough people who have a stake in it and are willing to organize, that's when we start to create the laws and the regulations, and we start to put it into, that, into our political systems. And this brings me to the next lesson, which is really important, um, and that is supportive structures are really um, powerful. Um, Often people say, like, oh, ride a bicycle to work. But if you live in a city that doesn't have bicycle works or doesn't have showers at your office and you come all sweaty, it's really difficult. Or if you're trying to recycle and there are no recycling systems in your city, there's no place to put um, plastic bottles or glass or whatever, it becomes difficult. If trains are more expensive than airplanes, if organic foods cost more than um, conventional foods, or if there's no vegetarian options available, we're likely to choose the cheaper, faster, uh, more convenient solutions. And so it becomes much easier to change when you have the infrastructure available, the rules, the regulations, the incentives, the systems in place. Um, and, and that's something that I think often we, um, we just think it's just up to individuals rather than for collective systems change. One of the things that um, I think is really important to recognize is that change is not about perfection. When you do an experiment with change, the learning really happens when you fail. Um, there's just simply sometimes when things don't work out as we planned. You know, you, you're, you're thirsty, you need water, and plastic water bottles are the only available option. Or your mother-in-law has invited you to dinner and she's made her famous meatloaf and you're, you know, like, oh, well, you know, you don't want to tell her you can't do that. And so there are times then when you realize that, like, oh, things aren't working out. And when we reflect on our failures and we see the changes that are not just about me and my lack of willpower or my willpower, but they really are about social practices, about the social norms, about the structures, and the way that society is currently organized and, you know, really the larger social context in which we... Um, exist, that's when we start to understand kind of how change happens on all of these um, scales. So um, probably the most powerful lesson of any experiment with change is that we influence each other. 
Um, and this is what I've learned from reading my students' papers, listening to them talk about it and everything. Because we often think that change is just up to individuals. And we conceive of individuals as being these isolated, autonomous, um, separate um, entities. And we almost treat people like they're just marbles. And a community is just like a box of marbles. And they touch and bump against each other, but everyone is very separate. Yet when we make a change and when we talk about it with other people and share our experiences and our reflections and our stories, we start to see that other people are watching and other people are listening and not always the people who you think. And so through hearing and reading the stories of my students, I realized that I had started to internalize all of these different changes that they were making. I still haven't dumpster dived, but when I walk by my flowers, I think of Henrik and I give them water. Or when I go to the store, I think of Maria and I take along bags. Or when I'm exhausted, I think of Anita and I just take an hour out for myself. And I start to realize that over the years I've just taken on a lot of different change experiments um, almost subconsciously. And I think that you know this is really important because it's not that we're like these separate marbles. We live in a world where that isn't just deterministic. We are constantly interacting and influencing each other, transmitting and receiving messages through the language, stories, ideas, emotions, and things that we expect. So this this group effect becomes really important, and it has convinced me that the most effective way to experiment with change is with others, doing it in small groups, not in a group of a million or a thousand or anything but with a small enough group that you actually read their stories and follow their stories. So, you know, and through that, you start to realize that, wow, actually, I do matter. I actually, these conversations I've had with my grandmother are actually influencing things. Or, oh, the person at the store is actually, you know, you know, buying organic apples and things like that. And so what we start to do is move away from this idea that it's just about our, you know, lifestyles and what we consume and, um, and things like that. But it's about our engagement with society and with change. So when we engage with change, our whole attitude towards change um, can change. And we become more aware of how changes in form, structure, and meaning-making take place. And I refer to these as three spheres of transformation that are constantly interacting with each other and, um, and working together to create outcomes for sustainability or whatever our goal is. And I'm going to just walk you through these um, very briefly, that you know, the first is the practical sphere. The practical sphere is the, um, you know, kind of the bullseye of the three spheres because this is what we can measure, this is what we can move, and this is what our goals often are. You know, the um, two degree, less than two degree um, goal for climate change, um, reduction in plastic waste, or um, improvement in education for sustainability, or more solar panels and things like that. And these often involve exactly, exactly what I was talking about earlier, the technical and the behavioral changes um, that we need, um, you know, logistical um, expertise and things like that. And probably 90 more than 90% of our efforts go into this practical sphere because this is what we measure and what we can move and everything. But it's where we're failing because we are not necessarily getting to, the, um, to those, um, the goals and the metrics that we've um, set out for us. And so then it's worth asking why are we failing? Why are we not be, um, able to make these very practical changes that we need? And one of the reasons for failure is because we ignore what I call the political sphere. And this is the very systems and structures that make it easy to change in the practical sense, or make it very difficult. These are the incentives, the rules, the regulations, the, um, the, the norms, and the institutions that I talked about earlier in relation to the, uh, in relation to the change experiments. 
And it is in this political sphere, it's political because this is where we get conflicts, this is where we get disagreements, this is where we get social movements trying to push for one system over another. Um, and this is a, you know, an area then that becomes the, one of the most important arenas for change to happen. Because who decides, who has the power to actually decide that we will invest more in fossil fuels and more in renewable energies and things? And in this sphere, we often get really stuck and polarized because we, we think different, we have different goals um, for that center sphere. And so practical outcomes become really different um, to, to um, experience. And one of the reasons for this is because we forget about this invisible sphere that I call the personal sphere. And the personal sphere is the individual and shared beliefs, values, and worldviews, and even paradigms that, um, that influence the way that we see the system, influence the way that we engage with the system. Um, they influence how we think about causality, free will, human agency, um, you know, how the world works, including who has the power to change these systems um, and what is actually possible. When we start to recognize you know, what, our, what beliefs are driving us and our group and things like that, we start to see what systems actually need to change to be consistent with um, the outcomes that we want. Um, often when I give this talk, people say like, yes, we need to change people's beliefs, values, and worldviews. That's the key. And when we do that, we put it right into this practical sphere of you know, like, okay, how do we change people? We forget that it's often challenging our own assumptions, being aware of our own beliefs about our own values and what we stand for um, in those changing systems. And so how to generate outcomes for sustainability, it really is becoming aware of other people's worldviews and connecting to them rather than trying to um, just change them. So I have been really inspired then by um, what I've learned from my students, and that's encouraged me to try running this 30-day experiment with people in Norway. And so I've, you know, we got some money from the Environment Agency, and we did some pilot projects um, with um, writers and grandparents and members of parliament and business people and high school students and artists. And, um, and it was just so we had that same feeling of the group effect in the same kind of, you know, patterns of different aha moments and things. And now we're spreading it to schools, to municipalities, to businesses, and anyone who feels stuck in their work with climate change and sustainability where people are just not engaging because they're engaging, you're trying to engage them as the problem rather than as you know, bigger solutions. And so our goal is to really change the conversation about climate change, that not just about carbon footprints, but about relationships and about especially our relationship with change. And we're arguing then that doing this in groups of 12 or 15s really um, gives you a much bit better advantage because it's about sharing stories and sharing experiences. And you really start to see that we influence each other through the language we have, through our stories, through our emotions and things like that. Um, we are waves of possibility that are entangled then through language, through stories and through meaning making. We are not just the isolated um, marbles. And this shows us that we actually have a lot more power than we think, especially when we work together um, for larger changes. Climate change is a global problem, and we're interested in inviting people from all over the world to take these challenges and to think, you know, to rethink how we engage with climate change. Um, I would love to invite everybody in Australia <laughs> to take the um, challenge. And we've actually put up a website um, called SeaChallenge, climatechallenge.no, um, to get... Um, 
people started with a link to Instagram and a hashtag tag SeaChallengeAccepted. And so what I would like you all to do is to consider whether you could make a 30-day challenge and, um, and just try it and reflect on it. And to make it easier, we have a, um, a downloadable workbook that gives you some of the kind of guidelines and some reflection questions um, like I give my students along the way to you know, really start to see how can we make a difference? How do, you, you know, how do your changes affect others? And when we get enough people to engage, not just in the center sphere of practical changes, but with all the spheres, political and personal um, transformations, we will change our relationship to change and begin to see our, our potential to transform um, at a rate and scale that probably we can't even imagine right now. In other words, it's about really putting people in as the protagonists of the stories instead of as the villains in climate change and really recognizing that we can use our capacity for creativity and for empowerment and collaboration and flexibility in much more effective ways. So I just want to leave you now with the idea that the solution to climate change, yes, it's about CO2, but it's also about changing our relationships. And if we change our relationships, um, we will change the systems, and we know that. So thank you very much. It was a very um, fascinating and insightful talk, Karen. Um, I'm very curious with um, your idea that it is about, the, you know, the relationships and, and, and thinking about it as a collective and that we aren't as powerless as we think that we are. Um, and I guess the practical way in which as individuals we can start seeing ourselves as part of um, the collective rather than, you know, here I am, small person, climate change is a big thing, it's happening around the world, and what can I actually do about it? And how do we bring that conversation back to that collective? Mm -hmm. So I'm very, yeah. I, I was just hoping that you could elaborate a little bit more on that, because I sort of think that that's, that's quite interesting, mm -hmm. you know, having that um, accountability as an individual, mm -hmm. that I am also part of the problem, mm -hmm. um, and that there are things that I can do to, mm -hmm. to fix this. Yeah, and again, it's really about how we engage with change, and and in some ways, because you know we're putting the finger, we're pointing fingers to people to you know change these um, you know like big systems, you know through you know the you know little things that they do, which is important. But I think it's also important to recognize that it is through becoming you know having that agency to change whatever your sphere of influence is for some people. People that might be deciding what the family eats for dinner, you know, is it like, oh, maybe three nights a week we'll have vegetarian or something. For other people, it might be changing the, you know, the what you serve at daycare or how you, um, you know, how your university. Um, trash system, you know, where they're recycling and things. And, and I've seen time and time again that it, often it is individuals who are inspired um, by something and passionate. In Norwegian, we call them um, ildsjelet, or like burning fire souls. And, uh, and they're the ones that really start to make that difference with, um, you know, like by organizing, coming together with other people. And it's not just about who leads, but it's also about who follows in creating new um, norms and things. So, so I think we just underestimate the power of people as being... Um, agents of change, not just personal change, but political change. Mm. It almost sounds as well, it's, it's almost about normalising, you know, the language around climate change, how we think about it in our own 
communities and environments because as you were talking I was thinking about you know you talked about practical things that people can do and you know recycling and all that sort of stuff and I was thinking about other parts of the world where you know perhaps they don't have those structures in place mm -hmm. but are also part of this conversation and how do they start thinking about addressing it in their communities mm -hmm. is that is that also part of it like normalizing the language around climate change and that it's not just up to people in policy to solve mm -hmm. the problem mm -hmm but that we can draw on that um, mm -hmm. community knowledge, I guess. Yeah, but it is, you know, it, it comes back to like the, the students that sometimes it's not about just, the, you know, like to, to be telling people in some parts of the world, people who have very, very small carbon footprints in the beginning that you should be, you know, um, doing these things. In some places it's about them getting that capacity and, um, and sense to organize and, um, and, and get um, a, you know, like transportation system in place or having access to, um, Fresh water, um, things like that. So, so it's it's a little bit like this: um, the idea that um, that waking up people and, and not necessarily normalizing the language of climate change, but really engaging with it. Mm. And I think that you know, when I think about the you know how things become normal through language, you know, we we see every year like the warmest year on record, the warmest year on record. And in some ways, we're starting to adapt to that as an idea, and we're starting to just take it for granted. Like, oh yeah, another warm year. Oh, climate change is happening. And I've seen people who have been like. Um, you know, like denying climate change or it's not a problem, and then suddenly they're um, we're like, oh yes, of course it's a problem, and we are, we need geoengineering or something, and without actually questioning the structures and the systems that have, you know what has created the problem in the first place, and I think that that um, you know the, there's a danger that we make we tend to make like adaptation very apolitical, whereas mitigation has been very political, and so to step aside from that and say, well, let's look at how we deal with change. Mm. I'm curious to find out if you've ever looked at this in, in, in your work about what we can learn from other communities in terms of how we address these sorts of issues. Like, for example, here in Australia, we do have our Indigenous communities where, you know, they've been around mm -hmm. for thousands and thousands of years. And I sort of think, how do we draw on that when we are having conversations about going forward in terms of addressing climate change as a collective um, and what we can learn to, you know, I guess, address address that issue mm -hmm. yeah. is, is is that something you look at and how communities in different parts of the world mm -hmm. try and address climate change mm -hmm. away from mm -hmm. you know, this western sense of this is how you fix it and mm -hmm. targets and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. but perhaps you know even on a on a community level yeah. there are possible answers there Mm -hmm. and perhaps tapping into that? I yeah. don't know if you've ever considered Yeah, well, we look at culture, the role of culture and what people value, you know, different cultural values and how people have organized themselves and not necessarily just to address cl climate change, but to address lots of different stressors because climate change is just one of many different um, stressors. And I, the way I think of it, it's really like it's an entry point. It's a symptom of something. And if we address climate change, you know, how we address climate change, if we do it successfully and adapt successfully, we'll be addressing, you know, inequality, poverty, conflicts, all these other things because they really are about where we draw the line between us and the other mm. and how we treat other species and future generations. And you can look to many, many other cultures who look at the world differently. They think seven generations ahead of time. They, they recognize, you know, they, they, um, the value of biodiversity and things. So you start to see that there are, you know, it's just, you know, what has become the dominant worldview has spread through globalization. Um, is you know there are other ways out there. There are alternatives, and often they're just kind of off the radar from um, you know the everyday communication and media that we hear about. Mm. One of the other things that I thought was interesting in terms of some of the practical solutions that we can you know sort of take into our own lives when when thinking about this was you, you talked about the personal, but also the political engagement and the importance of actually 
being part of that conversation. Um, and I, I was hoping you could perhaps elaborate a little bit more on that, because I think we, when we do listen to politicians and people are talking about climate change, it does very much feel like it's a conversation that's happening over there and there's very little that I can do, um, mm -hmm. you know, as, as an individual, apart from exercising my vote mm -hmm. during an election. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. In terms yeah, of what I, you know, I think that that political sphere is the most important one because that's you know where where change does yeah. happen. Um, but it really is about challenging you know challenging our ideas that it's up to the politician you know out there, and and really um, starting to you know challenge the given and our assumptions about who decides and and things and really you know organizing um, for what we stand for the values that um, that you think and being aware of values of yourself, yourself and of other communities and looking for the connections within those values because there often are, you know, security, there's some universal values and they're just expressed very differently by different um, communities. For some people, security is a wall and my community and for other people, you know, in, sustainability is security when, you, when it comes down to it and getting people to realize that we have common interests um, in these, you know, that is one of the big challenges that mm. we're facing. So the political has to, you know, I think we have to engage differently and people often say, like, you know, how do we change the politics? And I think it's also to change the politicians, get engaged, you know, run for office, organize, mobilize, um, and things for what you stand. Yeah. And you, I mean, I was, as you were talking, I was also thinking about future generations, younger generations, and how, you know, the, you bring them into this kind of conversation. Um, what, what do you do? How do you start introducing this way of thinking, the very collective focus rather than the individual when talking to young people when they're thinking about climate change. I mean, you talked about your students um, and, I, and I'm curious um, mm -hmm. with how you begin engaging with yeah. that. I have a project called Voices of the Future that looks at the visions and values of young people in Norway and New Zealand um, actually, in, you know, towards that future and, and many of them are seeing the connections, you know, they're growing up in a globalized world and they're starting to, you know, recognize that um, we are connected and it's possible to, um, to make these changes and Others are not. Others are very technologically um, optimistic um, about the, um, the future. Um, but what we see then is that education matters. You know, that's where we have to make these connections. And whether we're educating our kids to be, you know, like to kind of think that it's about their carbon footprints or to think more in terms of solidarity and seeing themselves as a bigger part, that's, you know, the challenge. And I know that many schools and many teachers, you know, they don't necessarily have the tools for engaging people in these um, um, issues and getting young people to think. But, but at the same time, when I say to my students, you need to think outside of the box, they say to me, we're not in that box. <laughs> you need to get out of the box. And, um, and so, and I appreciate that too, is that, you know, they're thinking in ways that, you know, I, I wasn't when I was, um, you know, 18, 20. Yeah. And so how do we ensure that these, these conversations, again, I'm, I'm thinking about it in, in certain communities where all of this makes sense to, you know, quite a few people, a lot of us in this room probably agree with everything that you're saying, but there are other spaces where people don't have that access to that education, that understanding, that, that, that way of thinking about things, and how do we bring them into the conversation? Because again, this is a global issue, it's not mm -hmm. just an issue that can be addressed by certain pockets of mm -hmm. our population. Yeah, yeah no, climate change is my issue when I go to you know, um, a village in Kenya or something, you, know, you, you wanna figure out what matters to them, what are they interested in, electricity, you know, and then it's like, oh, how can we actually work together to create solar? Um, mm. so 
you know, collective solar energy plants and things. And so I think it really is to try to find, you know, to connect to what matters to people and what, what they value. And that goes for everybody because we all have things that we care about um, and that, that you can sort of, you know, find entry points for them. But the minute you come and start talking about climate change and save the world and then you get like people blanking out like that doesn't really, you know, and, it, and for good reasons, you know, like it's, it is an abstraction to talk about that, but it does have like concrete implications of, about water, about energy, about, you know, being able livelihoods and things like that. So if you can bring it home and often people, you know, they realize that changes are out there and they realize that, um, you know, that they, you know, some, you know, they can do something. Mm. You, you talked about stories briefly and the role that they can play in influencing how we have these conversations. Um, perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more. I mean, how do you see that, that shift, you know, and what mm -hmm. kind of stories are you talking about and what kind of engagement does that, mm -hmm. how does that look mm -hmm. like? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the stories we tell ourselves are, um, are this, you know, that, that's kind of the lives that we live. And, um, and right now, our story, if we talk about the story of climate change, it's like people are changing the climate, we're the bad guys and we need to, you know, change ourselves and things like um, that. It is not very empowering. It doesn't mobilize and you know engage and inspire people. But when we start to talk about like, wow, we are changing the climate, the Earth system, you know, and that means that we actually can change systems. We are part of the system, and and when one part of the system becomes like aware of itself as changing the system, that changes the whole system. Mm. And so you know the stories, you know whether we come out as you know when we see a positive story where we can you know where we open ourselves to possibilities for ch change versus stories of like game over, it's too late. And I see a lot of the science community is already saying that you know. Mm, we've missed the, you know, we've missed, we should have been doing something 20, 30 years ago and everything. And I, you know, I can see the rationality for um, pessimism about the future, but I also think that a lot of the climate models, the scenarios I showed you, they don't take into account collective action and collaborative power and the capacity of people. You know, they, they kind of assume that Climate change is this nonlinear change that is happening like this, and social change is like this. But social change is also a nonlinear process. It only takes um, one study, a modeling study, showed that it takes about 10% of people who have very strong beliefs to change. And that can go either way, you know, progressive or regressive. But, um, but this idea that we don't really, we haven't really included people in the equations that we're looking at. And, and, and that's my hope for the future is that, um, you know, like getting people to realize that we are more powerful than we think. Mm. Is that also part of uh, the engagement perhaps even with people in policy, thinking about, um, you know, that looking at the relationship in that way, you talked about the technical problem and how they're trying to deal mm -hmm. with it with innovation, but also considering that you know there there are these relationships and perhaps there are solutions. And that is that something that you are perhaps even pushing for for those people within that that sphere of of policy to mm -hmm. be considering mm -hmm. as they're making these decisions. Yeah, I think everybody needs you know we all myself included need to challenge our assumptions and to be able to look at you know like and, and instead of saying like is it possible to reach two degrees? Is it possible to um, do this? It's like how how can we make it possible and, um, and, and kind of, um, you know, step back um, and, and, and really see that, you know, so often we all have blind spots that, that we're not necessarily um, thinking. And some of those blind spots are thinking that, um, you know, we're too little, we can't do anything. I could ask you more questions, but I think I'll um, open up the floor to the audience if anyone's got any questions. Um, yeah. Would you like to make your way to the microphone? Thank <laughs> you. 
Oh, sorry. I thought you were. <laughs> that's, that's what I was standing here for. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Hello. Sorry. Um, oh, hi. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm. I agree with your um, sort of philosophy of changing social norms and, and changing how people think. And I think there's a. Uh, a, um, a circular relationship between thought and behaviour and thought and behaviour and collectivism mm. can help. What I'm interested in is um, I've recently had a bit of an epiphany in terms of environmental change that of how little I know about what I can do. Um, I found this out through Facebook. Recently I've had two posts. One telling me that um, coffee cups aren't recyclable and I always thought they were. And um, two, the danger of um, balloons going up in the air, landing in the sea and bird life dying from them. Mm. Um, that to me has gone, right, okay, I just can't do this anymore, keep cups and no more balloons at my kids' parties. But I'm very conscious of how little I know. When you were doing these, um, in your research, have, what, what have you found to be the most effective way of um, getting options to people? So letting people people being able to find out what it is they can do. Because I think one of the big challenges is there is a disconnect between me as one individual and this big problem. And you do feel powerless and it's mm -hmm. like, well, I'd like to do something, but I don't know what to do and I've got limited time to sort of find out. How do you get people en masse to, to know about what they can do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the approach we have been taking is to write these books, 100 Things You Can Do to Solve the Climate right. Problem and, and things like that, which people don't really buy. Like I had one student working in a bookstore and he said like he's trying to get the climate books up there, but they don't move. But all the self-help books and the, you know, all the you know, change books and everything really do move. And, um, and I think, you know, there are so many things, but often it's more like where our attention goes, you know, like, and, and I see that, you know, the minute, you know, like when you aren't really, you know, you don't look at the newspaper as like, oh, Antarctica has a crack in the ice sheet or this, you know, Greenland is melt. Like, people just kind of gloss over those. But when you start to look and you start to see that there are stories everywhere about climate change, but there are also stories about the solutions everywhere. And sometimes it's confusing. Is this coffee cup recyclable or not? And I see that in recycling bins at the university and airports and things that we're kind of going like, what, you know, that information and so transparency of information becomes really important you know can we get that type of information but I would ask you Mac is like what air what field do you work in or are you engaged in community or, or things like that because that's probably where you can have a much bigger impact when you take it into that and say like oh what are we you know what are we serving at the next um, you know conference or meeting or something like that why don't we try to get organic um, whatever, or vegetarian as the default option and things. And that's when we can start to, and that starts to change the norms because it affects the caterers' menus or it affects your institution's um, policies and, and things like that. Or, you know, how are we investing our money where and, you know, is it, is it environmentally friendly or not? Mm -hmm. And when you get people doing that, like in Norway that has a very big pension fund, you start to get people starting to be aware of like, oh, you know, we are using you know, our oil money for more, you know, coal gas um, things, and, and, and those changes can make a huge difference. But with the point about the information bit, you yeah. know, was that what you were addressing with what the political engagement? Is that kind of, like, mm -hmm. in terms of practical steps? Because mm -hmm. um, she was saying that, you know, Facebook is telling us something else and mm -hmm. she's trying yeah. to make sense of it, but then there's just no information out there, correct me if I'm wrong, and you're trying to figure out how you fit into all of that. Was mm -hmm. that part of that political sphere that yeah. you were saying in I terms of seeking it out and perhaps mm -hmm. that, that's the yeah. action? That and it's also part of the practical... Is, oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. It's just using that social momentum that, you know, mm -hmm. social media can have. Mm -hmm. Have you found other ways that you can sort of accelerate it 
from being an individual to getting mm -hmm. those messages to mm -hmm. the collective. Yeah. Well, you could, you know, in that political sphere, you could make regulations to say what is the carbon footprint of this product or this, um, you know, the clothes you're wearing or, you know, and the social impact of this. And so that you, we, we could, and that would be very much in the practical sphere that you have labels and you know and you're aware of um, everything that you're consuming. Um, and, um, but to get that, it does take people to, um, you know, say, to, to fight for that. Hi there, uh, my name's Erin. I have a question going to your comment about empowerment and positive messaging and education. Mm -hmm. So you were talking earlier about, well, you know, what's the point of me doing recycling my mm -hmm. plastic bags or not using plastic bags when there's a, a new coal mine being or coal power plant being built mm -hmm. or something? You feel very irrelevant, and that's true. But I just wanted to um, focus in on the the power of statistics. You know, if you mm -hmm. say I'm going to go vegetarian three days a week, um, you know, kind of have that lifestyle, what well, the flow-on effect is actually huge. If everybody did that, mm -hmm. then that, that creates a massive system change because, mm -hmm. you know, that's, uh, that's an enormous amount of meat that's not being produced. That, that will have a flow-on effect on the way agriculture's done. And, of course, we know the environmental impacts that, that the, the way farming is, mm -hmm. you know, kind of not great at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so are statistics empowering if, you, if people know what those figures are, and if so, have you come, in your research, come across um, an idea of the most effective way of getting those statistics across to people? Um, that's a great question, because, you know, I think, you know, you can have statistics either way to that, you know, statistics that show, you know, like the, the drop in the bucket that what we do, or the statistics that actually show how we amplify um, things. If everybody would, you know, Earth Hour, you turn your lights off for one hour around the world, and you can see that how much change that makes. Um, and, and it really is about making people conscious and aware of those. And so if you can, you know, like access, you know, I think... Um, if we can get those statistics. Um, Paul Hawken, the environmentalist, is actually publishing a book in April called Drawdown, which is actually going to have those statistics for things like LED lights and girls in schools and things to really show how we are actually moving, you know, how we can actually stop climate change with the solutions that exist right now. And he's counting those statistics. So that, I think, is going to be a very much more uplifting and powerful way because you're, you're tracking what's working and what's going in the yeah, different it's, directions. It's a, it's a, the free theory, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. And I think that those messages are empowering because our echo chambers, you know, on social mm -hmm. media or whatever can be very mm -hmm. negative. They can enforce that, mm -hmm. oh, actually it is doom and gloom and that, you know, this climate change is happening in a very negative way or, or we can reinforce positive messages, mm -hmm. as we say, and empower people yeah. with what they're doing. Yeah, and the minute you do that and then the people who are empowered start to actually see other opportunities and they come up and that gets into tapping into people's creativity. Mm -hmm. Got a question over there. Hi, I'm really excited about your project um, and love this talk. Thank you. And um, I have so many questions, I don't know where to start. Um, one of them is given that change is one of the few certainties in life, um, why is it that we are so resistant to change? Is it like just this point in time where it's the pace of change? Is it the perceived effort? of change, um, and so I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And then the other quick question is, after your 30-day program, are you finding that um, the participants are then creating groups, continuing with their groups, engaging with groups? Uh, what's the kind of follow-on effect of the 30 days on a longer period of time? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, no, those are um, are great questions. Your first one was about the um, why are we resistant? Why to are we resistant to change? Yeah. Why are, you know, we have a kind of an immune system. Um, Robert Keegan at Harvard University, who looks at adult development, has a book called Immunity to Change that, um, you know, like it's not change that itself, but it puts us out of our comfort zone into this sense of disequilibria. And when it gets too uncomfortable, we just kind of drop out, ignore, you know, treat things as technical problems and, and don't work in a productive um, area. And that, that zone, you know, where we can handle a problem really depends on the context. And I know myself that there are some times when I'm tired or I don't have that, you know, um, that capacity and I just go, I don't want to hear about this anymore. And other times it's like, bring it on for change. And so to recognize that the change itself is uncomfortable for people. And, and that's the benefit of doing an experiment because you do them enough times and you realize, okay, the first week is going to really suck. <laughs> I'm going to be really, you know, this is going to be difficult or I'll be really excited. And then you realize where, you know, by the second week it becomes, you know, you fail and, you know, all of these things. And, um, and it really is to start to have that reflexivity rather than just reacting to change, to anticipate and go, ah, I know that it's going to be really uncomfortable for me to, you know, get used to my carrying a water bottle with me everywhere um, for the first days or not um, doing this or that. Um, so it changes something that we, um, you know, that you can approach in a different way if you recognize that, yes, the discomfort is part of it. And as for following up on the students, I have a research project now that is doing that. And what I see, though, from talking to them over the years is that they start to see that things aren't so black and white. So if they've been vegetarian for a week, they go back to eating meat. And then, but less meat, and less meat, and less meat. And I see myself, because I do them with the students, and, and, and over the years, it's just, you know, like, it's just become easy to give up meat, or to stop driving, or to do things, because you know you've done it for 30 days, and then it just, be, you know, like, the, the challenge has been accepted and taken, and that you start to gradually say, that, like, yeah, I don't need to shop. I buy my clothes secondhand. It's no problem. And, um, and so the, yeah, it takes out the drama. And so it's an interesting thing to see. A lot of people have written to us. It's like, we want, to, you know, we want the studies and, and the statistics. So mm -hmm. we're working on that. Because in the um, work that I've been doing, what I've noticed is that a lot of people say at the end of the change process that their resistance to change was alleviated by the support of being in a group that was willing to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that group effect that you start to see that, oh, I'm not the only one who's failing here. I'm not the only one who's struggling or that is, you know, having funny experiences. And it should Thank be you. fun. <laughs> is, is one of the yeah. Thank you. I think we've got a question. I um, just want to mention there's an organisation in Australia called One Million Women, which is a grassroots organisation that, that is looking, and it's been going for a number of years now, that's looking how women and girls in particular can, can bring about change, climate change, through being the CEOs of households, making decisions around electricity. They have a lot on the website about what products are good products and bad products, to answer your question. Um, it's a fantastic organisation that's looking... At, at starting at grassroots and, and creating change through girls and women. So it's worth having a look at one mm -hmm. woman, one million women. I'm not involved, but I just mm -hmm. it's something which I do belong to, and mm -hmm. it's a really good place to start. And it's an Australian-based mm -hmm. organisation. Okay. 
Right. Sure. No, that's great. And I think that there are so many of those movements. And again, Paul Hawken, you know, in his book, Blessed Unrest, is talking about it's the biggest social movement in history, but it's not organized. There are so many yeah. different ways. And that is tapping into that power to address climate change. I want to pick up on the point of a, a previous questioner, which was she was asking, you know, if all of us stopped eating meat um, for a number of days, we could see this flow-on effect. But I'm curious, because before you mentioned that we shouldn't see climate change in isolation of all the other issues that are affecting us in the world, as in if we're not addressing things like poverty and all those sorts mm -hmm. of things, we can't expect to solve the problem of climate change. And obviously in communities where people don't even have access to food, it makes it very difficult to, on one side, you're kind of going, let's not eat this, but on another side, they don't even have access to it. So how do we start thinking about it in that way, that it's not just in isolation, that it's not just about, that it is part of all the other challenges that we're facing in the world. Yeah, and that is where it comes, systems thinking comes into account, because if everyone stopped eating meat today, then you would have people, you know, cattle ranchers and a whole industry that would be, you know, um, threatening, and so how, and, the same goes for you know oil and gas. That we we have to think about how we are going to support people through transitions, um, other things, or what the impacts will be um, wider. So um, so it, it's it's great as you know like to to be able to think of how what we do here influences livelihoods in another part. Eating local, what does that mean for international trade for farmers in Zambia, for example, um, and things and that takes a, you know, you have to step back and look at it from a systems perspective. When we talk about systems, we often are looking at very different systems and um, you know, a local system versus a... And they almost seem very global. esoteric, like they're over there and I'm not quite... Yeah, yeah. And that idea with climate change that we are actually affecting people on the other end of the world and that our solutions also will and how do you have that kind of collective solidarity so that my solution isn't your vulnerability or my adaptation isn't your um, you know maladaptation yeah fantastic I think I'm gonna end the session Karen okay great it's been very wonderful thank you so much for coming out yeah, thank you, thank you.